I remember I went into the, the Oval Office. I got to say goodbye to President Obama. And he was like, you're joining the Marine Corps? Like, you know, no judgment. But I'm sure he was thinking, like, why would you leave a job at the White House to go to boot camp? You know, but I did. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I spoke with Laura DeLucia. It's always great to have a chance to catch up with her. Laura worked for the recent Biden presidential campaign in key roles, first as director of operations in New Hampshire for the first primary, then as director national state operations. Laura has put together a really interesting career in enterprises, political, technological, and otherwise, including for the first Obama campaign and the Obama White House. We had a good conversation about the 2020 campaign, how her career developed, the role of operations in politics and beyond, and other matters. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Laura DeLucia of Biden 2020. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Laura. Hi, Nathaniel. (laughs) Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm Laura DeLucia. Most recently, I was the director of operations on the presidential inaugural committee. And then right before that, I was the national state operations director for the Biden campaign. I was the New Hampshire operations director before that in the primaries. I got my start at um, NGP software. So that was a super formative time in my life that really kicked off my trajectory in presidential politics. I was Nathaniel's personal assistant there for quite some time. I headed to the um, Obama campaign in 2007, did operations on the campaign there, went on to work in the White House, amazingly enough, um, in presidential personnel. I was the director of operations there. I went on to a brief stint in the Marine Corps, went through officer candidate school. I came back, I worked at a think tank that was focused on national security, the Center for a New American Security. I then moved to New York to work for Tough Mudder, which you may have heard of. It's a little mud run obstacle company. And then, yeah, kind of bounced in and out of politics, working for uh, the MIS department, which is a technology company focused on progressive politics and nonprofits. And then I joined the campaign because I felt that 2020 was just too important to sit out. You have had so many jobs since we worked together and I'm sure have learned so much. I feel a little bit envious of all that. I don't think I've had more than one or two in that time. <laughs> Is there more mud in presidential politics or in tough mudder? <laughs> that's a good question. Definitely more drama in politics, that's for sure. Tough mudder was a nice little respite from all of that. Where did you grow up, Laura? 
Manchester, New Hampshire? Yeah, Manchester, New Hampshire, which is which is really how I got into politics. You know, New Hampshire is uh, the core of presidential politics. And you if you live there, you just can't help but uh, but get involved. So that's really how I got my start. Were your parents political? My mother, definitely not. She still won't tell me who she voted for, even though it's clear at this point. Um, my father, though, was incredibly intrigued by the process. I definitely remember sitting around the TV watching Bill Clinton. I got to meet Jimmy Carter once because my father was able to give him uh, a prize. So he was definitely interested in it, but he never worked in politics. He worked for the, the state government. Didn't you go off to the George Washington University Indeed, in Washington, George D.C.? Washington, yes. <laughs> I did. I... I was able to meet Nelson Mandela when I was 11 years old. My father um, gave him a prize for international understanding in 19, I think it was 1994, shortly after he was released from prison. And I remember my parents sitting me down to explain what apartheid was. That injustice just blew me away at 11 years old or whatever it was, combined with the fact that my mother had worked in the Boston um, public school during desegregation. And so there was just kind of this theme of just sort of injustice um, that I think I took on and, and decided that that was one of the reasons I wanted to get into to politics to sort of change that. Um, and so I uh, did a little summer stint at Georgetown University, fell very much in love with Washington, D.C., um, and headed off to GW. So you've now mentioned that your dad gave prizes to Jimmy Carter and Nelson Mandela. So I have to ask, how did he get himself into a position of giving prizes to such luminaries? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he was the president of the Fulbright Association. So the alumni association of those that get the Fulbright Award. And they, you know, collect a small amount of money and are able to give away a prize every year to someone for international understanding. Oh, that's really cool. What does he do for a living? Uh, he's trying to be retired now, but he works uh, He's a trustee giving away money uh, for an organization in New England. What did you study at, at uh, GW? Political science with a focus on public policy, um, and then also dabbled in a minor in criminal justice and women's studies. You know, I think I fumbled around trying to figure out what the right move was there. But I was in school in 2001 when 9-11 happened. I was, you know, a couple blocks away from the White House. And so my focus kind of shifted to national security and like everyone just really sort of started to think about um, having that as a sort of secondary focus. So how did you land at NGP, which is what it was, NGP software back in those days? And how big was the company then? Oh my gosh. For those of you who know NGP Van as it is now, and you know, being on the campaign, the Biden campaign, everyone in Democratic politics knows NGP Van, like no question, right? And it's just, they were amazed when I would talk about the old days and how it was NGP software. Um, so very cool to, to see how far it's come. Let's see, it was about two days before I was graduating from school and I found an ad in the Washington City paper, you know, back before uh, <laughs> the days of online postings. This is a physical newspaper that I was reading found a little blurb that somebody was looking for a personal assistant, uh, technology and politics. I had been an intern on the Howard Dean campaign up in New Hampshire and uh, was really fascinated at how they were using technology and databases in kind of an innovative way up there. And so I met you. I think we were on your back porch. There were probably maybe 10 people at the company at that point, maybe eight. Super small. I did a lot of furniture building my first, you know, several <laughs> months there. I thought I had won, won the lottery by finding uh, NGP. What was I like to work with? 
I've never asked anyone that question, I don't think. But uh, if you were my assistant, you probably have some opinions. I'm so excited that we have this time to talk about this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, you were fantastic. And, you know, I'm just glad I'm here to be able to tell you how, like, formative that really was because... I think you were the type of leader that, you know, obviously had your own opinions about things, but was incredibly open to and uh, like proactive about asking other people's opinions on how we should sort of approach things. Very obviously innovative. You wanted to use technology for everything. Anytime we tried to do something like on paper or it was a manual process, you were like, can't this be automated? Like this definitely can be automated. So I learned and you know that was my very first job and so it was just ingrained in my brain that like there always has to be a better more efficient way to do things um and the other thing i really took away from you was that you were constantly before the world of podcasts before those that even existed you were always looking to connect with people i remember you saying you know you would meet someone in the street or whatever it was get someone's business card and say hey can you set up a lunch with me and don buyer or whoever it was you didn't have any sort of objective, you know, they weren't in a position where they could buy our software, but you just want, you were interested in them. They were interesting people. Maybe an opportunity would come up down the road, but you just want to connect with interesting people. And I took so much away from that because I saw that later as you cultivated those relationships, 20 years down the line, Don Byers in Congress, you know, it, um, it worked and those people were fascinated to connect with. You were great, you know, I would recommend it, especially for anyone who's thinking about like launching a career, being someone's personal assistant, you got to see exactly how that the leader, the CEO, president of an organization operates um, without sort of having to take on the responsibilities of the mistakes that they make. But, you know, I got to see how sales worked, how all those decision making, um, and that's really been influential in the rest of my career. What I remember about working with you Over the next few years, I had a couple different assistants of varying levels of motivation and quality, and you may remember a few of them. You were too valuable to to be an assistant for long, and so what did we turn you into after that? We made up a bunch of titles, which I also thought was great. You're like, what should your title be? You know, we workshopped it a little bit. I think I worked on internet strategy, we called it, in the early days of, you know, when building a website was hard, and then client services manager eventually. It's interesting when you are running a small company to try to think about how do you properly incentivize the right kind of work habits while also not wanting people to burn out. There's a tricky balance to, to how you get the most out of a team. And the nice thing that I had with a company in those days is that just about everybody that we hired had a better work ethic than I did. I never had to do that at all. I, I just like let people lead me forward, I think, was, was how it worked. Yeah, but that was incredible. And I felt so invested because it was such a small organization. I felt like I could make such a difference and I was able to make that difference. And you gave us the freedom to say, oh, here's this project I think we should do and like run with it and make it our own. Whereas at maybe a large corporation, you would just feel like a cog in the wheel. But I definitely felt like I could have a real impact. Well, for me, I'm very nostalgic about those times. I feel like, you know, the, the company was taking off. We had built something that people wanted. People were buying it. We were learning how to make it better. We were kind of gelling as a team. And I've come to learn over you know the years since that that is a rare thing. 
and that is something that you know should be celebrated and enjoyed at, at the time which i think i did but i also you know worried a lot and i'm glad that you were there for that part of the business growing yeah you know it was such a special time occasionally i thought back about you know rejoining the team and but it was such a unique period that i kind of don't want to ruin it you know what i mean and the oh the other one of the other things you really taught me was about talent and how important people were to the operation, you would say, this is a really smart person that's unemployed right now. Like, let's bring them into the fold and then figure out what they can do. Didn't even necessarily have a specific position in mind sometimes, but just knew that they were super driven and like would have the work ethic. And sometimes you're not in a financial position where you can do that. But I've taken that with me too, to because I do feel that talent and people are so core to, to everything you do. When a company is growing, you have that luxury of kind of drafting the best available player as you might on a on a team and and that was fun hiring is hard and finding the right people you know if you get it right half the time i think you can feel like you're doing a good job but we had an awful lot of people some of whom are still there who really helped build a company that was a fun place to be and it's, that's super rare you know 20 years later having having your same employees there Whenever somebody good left, there's a there's a pang when you're when it's your team, you know, and and there were wonderful people that went on to greener pastures across the time you were there and beyond. When you decided to leave, you went off to the Obama campaign. I was definitely very sad about that, but happy for you that you had chosen, you know, something of import. Like I felt much better when people went on to a job that seemed like it fit them and it was good for the country rather than maybe just to find more money or to you know get out of my hair or something. What was it like to join an insurgent political campaign as you did Obama in 07? What was that like? I felt, I felt so guilty to leave. So it's crazy to think back because I think now I think of myself as very risk- tolerant or even, you know, aggressive about taking risks because of, I think, that experience. But at the time, I was super young. I think I was 24 or something like that. Um, and I felt so guilty for leaving you because this was the only company I knew. I cried. Um, <laughs> and I was like, my parents even family. were like, yeah, they're like, you're going to quit your perfectly great job that you love and leave DC to move back home in with your parents. I moved back in with my parents for absolutely zero money to, you know, do this crazy job for a candidate that probably has no shot. Um, and I was really nervous about it. But all I knew was like this candidate, I was just like super fired up about. I had no expectations. I don't think I remember thinking beyond the New Hampshire primary. Like I, they, there became a moment at one time, I remember holding a sign, standing on a street corner. Corner. Somebody told us we were like neck and neck with Hillary in the polls and then turning to the person next to me saying, oh my gosh, I think we might have a shot at winning the primary, not like the whole thing. <laughs> so leaving for that campaign was, you know, it was a shot in the dark, but I just knew it felt right in my heart and that I could take everything that I had learned and sort of put it to use for this great cause. I was, you know, I think Obama was against the, the war. He wanted to do a lot of innovative things. And you know, having the first African-American president was enough where, you know, I thought that that cause, even if he didn't win, was worth blowing up my life for. You had really done a lot of operations type work for us. Your title there was, you know, an operations related title. And it seems to have been your title 
in this whole series of jobs since. What does that mean, operations? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I went into that interview, it was maybe a month after um, Obama had announced for the presidency, I had been talking to, and because of connections through NGP, you know, NGP knows everyone in the Democratic space. So I knew one of the uh, the Senate pack, the guys on the Senate pack. And so I was interviewing, they said, you know, do you want to do scheduling or do you want to do operations? Because Heather, the one in New Hampshire had been doing both. And I was like, I don't know what really either of those are, but it seems that what I've been doing at NGP is more operations. So let's do that. And thank God I went that route because I probably would have been a terrible scheduler. But (laughs) operations, I mean, you know, I think it varies in every organization, but I keep telling everyone from our team, like, it's such a key part of literally any organization, even if you're not specifically calling it operations, you know, it's the budget, whether that's you actually managing and creating the budget or working with the budget team, it's uh, the purchasing of, you know, literally anything lit, yard signs, t-shirts, you know, in any other organization, it could be a number of things. HR, typically, if you're in an under-resourced campaign, like, you know, we were on the Obama campaign, and even the Biden campaign in the beginning, you can be the HR director, which is a whole other set of skills, you know, that you might not necessarily be trained to do. Um, Technology, uh, you know, I think, and that really depends on your sort of level of comfort and interest in it. Because I had worked at NGP, I've always been super, like, comfortable, even though I have no, you know, official credentials or certifications or anything, I can sort of speak the language and I sort of get it and I love it. So that was a big piece. And then just, you know, I think operations is just being the problem solvers of the organization. Uh, It could, you know, vary, it could be event logistics, that sort of things, but figuring out what, what the problem is, building a process around it to make things more efficient so that the core of your organization can do the work that they are set out to do and, and achieve their mission. What sort of person do you think makes a good operations manager? I think the problem solver at the outset, being willing to be creative and innovative at the way you tackle things. That being said, you can't just be creative and innovative because I know a lot of people that are that don't have that organizational skill set. So I think, you know, when we were hiring, when I was hiring state operations directors, uh, one of our qualifications was being organized AF, we said. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) loving a Google, if you love Google spreadsheets, you know, you are part of team ops. Uh, We love to just take something and organize the hell out of it. So I think that's also key. And political campaigns are such a place that needs operations, right? There are so many aspects to it that have to spring up out of whole cloth and work from top to bottom. Yeah, absolutely. Just be able to sort of dig in. I mean, I think when you're starting a campaign, obviously, you got to hire a couple of key people, but operations should probably be at the top of that short list so that they can sort of dig in and start to figure out, you know, what you're, especially with the budget piece. Um, I was just thinking one of my favorite quotes is a Joe Biden quote, which I've been saying for years, but you know, he said, don't tell me what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what you value. So that's sort of like the start of crafting everything. And from there, just like even getting an office, you know, NGP moved to office spaces, I remember, which was a huge sort of undertaking, but the physical space you're going to be in that sort of thing. Um, getting that right is important. I think there's a lot of uh, young people, say, in college who have trouble imagining how a career could come to fruition. How do you 
use the skill set that you've sort of developed in college or what your natural talents are to actually work a job. And I think you're such a good example of, you know, coming out of college and finding your way into some organization and doing a good job and then doing that sequentially from organization to organization and building a career. Who thinks of that when they're in college? Hey, I could have a career in operations. No, I don't think there's a single, I mean, maybe they've evolved, but you know, I don't think there's a single guidance counselor that's like directing people to join operations. But fortunately, it's one of those things that you can do super entry level, because really, all it takes is like hard work and the grind. And like, if you're willing to do the work, it's, you know, I'm not going to say it's the most strategic always until you get to sort of the higher levels, but at an entry level. And then the other thing I think I'd say is like having two things, right, that you can be good at. So if you have the operations and then, I mean, politics and technology, that's two things, but like those are very specific things where you can build that niche world and sort of get into those few organizations that exist. Well, and, and once you're good at operations, I don't think you're ever going to want for employment you can bring that kind of thing into almost any industry or, you know, place in the political sphere, if that's where you are. Exactly. Tell me how that developed within Obama. So you're working in New Hampshire. The New Hampshire primary comes and goes. Typically, a presidential campaign then redeploys its staff into other states as the primary process goes forward. How did they redeploy you? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I became a big piece of that. You know, I'm reading A Promised Land and I haven't gotten to that chapter, but I know that there's pages devoted to the loss, the devastating loss um, in the New Hampshire primary, which we only came in second, which seems great compared to the fifth, you know, that we came in <laughs> with Biden in the primary. But yeah, so we uh, we lost. I expected my time on the Obama campaign to be over, had no idea that they had other plans. You know, they brought me to Chicago to the headquarters. And just because, you know, operations is logistics, I became a part of the small team that was redeploying staff all over the United States. So we, you know, would send out an email saying you're moving from this state to another state. And that was a huge operation, which we later would use on the Biden campaign when COVID hit to redeploy everyone back home or out to the states. And so, you know, travel logistics became a part of operations that wasn't, you know, traditionally part of that. But that was a huge piece of it. Also, the sort of HR feeling people always they said, Oh, I need to go home and do my laundry in between states, or I need to take care of XYZ. So there was definitely like an empathetic, like, you couldn't just be a cold sort of <laughs> operations person, you had to sort of understand people and their, their humanity, you know, what did you feel like your relationship was to the greater project? Were you like, were you glued to the news? Were you too busy to see what was going on? How, how did you feel the atmosphere? Yeah, on the Obama campaign, I mean, in being in operations, you're super glued to the work. I remember missing major events. Like I had no idea the World Series was going on. I didn't want to watch CNN anymore. But, you know, I think both on the Obama and the Biden campaign, the communications department does a great job of like press clips and everything. So you're kind of tied into what's happening, but you also are just so deep in the weeds of the work that it's hard to sort of focus on the bigger picture sometimes. My friends would, would be alerting me about things that I was like a minute behind on, you know, because you're so into the actual work. Did you go yourself to other states or did you just direct from, from Chicago? 
I self-deployed myself. So being at headquarters is a much different experience than being in the States. And I, I think my personality just loves like being on the ground, getting my hands dirty. Operations is typically like super hands-on, which was definitely difficult in COVID times. You know, I was only at headquarters for a couple of months, but the feeling was much more sort of subdued and strategic. And I really like being on the ground and being able to have that sort of like tangible impact. So I remember I went into the COO's office. They said, we need a Texas operations director. Like, who would you recommend? And I was like, me, I'll go. So I had just rented an apartment in Chicago. I never lived in it. I put myself on a plane to Texas and started immediately, you know, we set up like 30 field offices down there. Um, And from there I went, so I lost every single primary state we were in, but it was always, you know, the really like difficult battles. Um, So Texas was really close. Um, I then went to Puerto Rico. They sent me to Puerto Rico. I only knew how to say invoice in Spanish, um, but managed to get by there. That was a fascinating experience. We lost by just an incredible amount to Hillary Clinton and then to Indiana before I moved to D.C., where I was then the DNC liaison between the campaign as we started to move into the general. You definitely were in the middle of it. In the thick of it, for sure. Learned a whole lot. That would, you know, I learned a lot that really came into play in 2020. A lot has changed. Technology has changed like dramatically. um, That was like a huge thing. Now, were you part of the transition team after he won? Yes. On the Obama campaign, I was. That was a great experience, super short. Um, So I was already in DC, uh, got the call. I think it was a couple days before we actually won the election. Maybe it was right after, but you know, within a quick amount of time saying, um, would you like to join presidential personnel on the transition, which is like a key part of the transition, figuring out the system of how are we going to get people into these places. And that was fascinating. We got, I think, a couple of CD-ROMs from the Bush administration with the list of positions. And what are we going to do with that? Um, It turns out the Obama campaign and the McCain campaign had come together to decide a database to use to collect all of those applications and figure out who should go into these roles. And so we spent, you know, long days and nights trying to craft a new database and figure out what the system was to, as quickly as possible, get people vetted. And so like building out all of that technology so that we were ready to go day one. It's definitely starting to learn about the government side from the inside. Right. Yeah, we had no idea. There were a fair amount of like Clinton administration, uh, former officials that were advising us. And so they were incredibly helpful. Did you place yourself in the White House? How did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) You know, again, I think we were, I've had so many discussions. We were so like bright eyed, bushy tailed, like had no idea what to expect. I think the one thing going into it was that none of us expected. I mean, we didn't even expect to move on to the next primary, right? Like I never once in my life expected like, oh, I'll go on to work at the White House. Whereas I think some of the folks that maybe joined the Clinton campaign, maybe that was sort of their end goal. But, you know, when I got the call to say, um, you know, we'd like to give you a job in the White House doing the exact same thing you've been doing on the transition, that was just, it didn't seem like real life. And it still doesn't, honestly. So yeah, it was just an honor. <laughs> Did you like working in the White House? It's kind of known as a, a bit of a grind. It's a hard place to work. Definitely a hard place to work, Just, but nothing can compare to the pace and the intensity of the campaign. So even in the government, I mean, it was long days. I remember being there every single weekend for the first year, but it still just couldn't compare to the level of the campaign. But, you know, you had to be a little bit more careful and thoughtful and strategic because 
now you're representing the United States. But I mean, it was a fascinating experience. I think that, you know, half of it was actually giving like West Wing tours, um, being able to bring people into the, you know, you had these privileges to be able to give people tours of the White House. And that was just one of the coolest parts of the whole gig. I enjoyed one of those tours with you, I remember. Do you remember that? Yes, they're all blurs, so I actually don't remember like many individual. But every single weekend, I was like, that's my part-time job, giving, giving tours. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you have just such driven people and presidential personnel our whole thing was like people are policy and we were trying to make it the most diverse administration in history. And so that was just like, I felt super purposeful and every day felt really meaningful trying to hit this goal of like bringing a new variety of staff, not just, you know, the typical white men that have occupied the White House. What led to you leaving a job like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of like any position after a while. I think I was there for a year and a half. I, you know, I moved around doing a couple of different sort of functions. The last thing I was doing was as director of operations, I was creating the nominations for the Senate approved um, nominees that would then go to the White House clerk, which was like a very intense process. You know, you had to be very careful about it, but it also didn't involve a ton of, you know, like strategic thinking. We had put on a really cool professional development series, but I kind of felt like, I had always wanted to join the Marine Corps after 9-11 and had kind of just gotten distracted by this whole political thing. Um, and working in the administration, I worked in the national security cluster, filling those jobs and just realized that there were so few women, so few Democrats that were going into these like super important policy positions at the Pentagon and such. And so just at that time, I think the environment too got me to like, you know, there's going to be an age cutoff. So it's either now or never that I... I joined the Marine Corps. And so I, I ended up doing it. And, uh, you know, I think people thought I was crazy. I remember I went into the, the Oval Office, I got to say goodbye to President Obama. And he was like, you're joining the Marine Corps, like, you know, no judgment. But I'm sure he was thinking, like, why would you leave a job at the White House to go to boot camp, you know, but I did. You'd always been a runner, you were fit. I think I would avoid the boot camp at the Marine Corps. What what was it like? <laughs> it was wild. I mean, the campaign, the Obama campaign was the worst shape I've ever been in. I mean, I exercised zero towards that. And so coming back from that was just difficult. But I mean, it was the most grueling experience I've ever been through. But I learned so much that I would never take it back. They really have crafted this just very like thoughtful sort of leadership program where they teach you these lessons without you realizing the lessons until the end. And just like the life lessons that I learned about teamwork, really that like you can't do it without a team, how to lead small teams and just like self-confidence, all of that just learned an incredible amount. But it was grueling. Absolutely. Who would you recommend trying that to? What sort of person? <laughs> I absolutely would not recommend trying it unless you're, you know, serious about the outcome and doing it. But I would say for officers, I mean, there is a huge leadership component and they, they're evaluating you through this, you know, two and a half, three month period. So, you know, folks who want to take a leadership role and feel confident in that and do have like a lot of physical experience. But, you know, it's such a good base for if you do eventually want to work in national security and you'll just get so much more, you know, the credentials of learning the military and how that works and like proving yourself is incredible. Did you do well? I finished and I graduated. I think we started out with 66 women, something like that. By the end, there were about 20 
I survived. If I was self-evaluating, I would say, you know, I was in the middle of the crop there. Um, I had a lot to work on, but, you know, I made it through. I graduated. Um, and then I decided not to take my commission for a variety of reasons. I had hurt my back. I was sort of questioning, you know, the next level and that sort of thing. So ultimately, I didn't take the commission and had some regrets about that afterwards, but moved on from there. You had some regrets about not taking the commission? Yeah, about not having taken the commission. I went back, I tried to rejoin. Uh, they didn't accept the letter too much time had gone by. But, you know, coming out of that experience, it was so intense. When I went to go work at this national security think tank, it was just, it was just really a difficult transition having gone from such intense experiences like the campaign and this to sort of the nine to five, what am I doing with my life sort of lifestyle. And that was something you did for two years, the Center for New American Security. Anything you took away from that that you still think about? Yeah, I mean, I think everything I learned at NGP, I got to put to use. It was a small sort of, it had been around for several years, but still there were a lot of processes that we needed to create. So everything I took from NGP, I felt like I was able to apply in terms of like operations. It was also the type of place where you're convening different um, parties. So from the Democratic side, the Republican side, from like all sides of life, convening them to figure out what the best policy solutions are, and then sort of presenting that to the government, to the Pentagon, in terms of like the policy of what should we do about Afghanistan? What should we, be, we do about the South China Sea? So I almost considered like it was a master's degree because I just got to like learn so much, even though I was doing operations. I hadn't realized how long you stayed at the MIS department. Me neither. That's probably your longest, longest job, something like six years, right? Tell me about that enterprise. Oh, that was great. I think you've maybe had a conversation with Rajiv Chopra. So he was my good friend from the Obama campaign. He was the IT director in 08. And then I believe he was the acting uh, CIO in 2012. I met him on the side of the road in Texas. Uh, during the 2008 campaign, he was driving a U-Haul full of PC units that he had driven from Nevada or Iowa or something like that. He had never finished uh, college, but was just, I mean, he still is one of the most brilliant people I've ever met and just, you know, absolutely there for the cause, not for himself and just learned an incredible amount. He went on to, you know, become the IT director just kind of by proving his, his worth there. Um, and he had always had a company called MS department, which does technology for campaigns and like progressive organizations. So I felt like it was almost like being on a campaign, but with like a little bit less of the intensity, but still being able to work in technology. And I learned just like an incredible amount in terms of uh, tech and sort of how to apply that. Who did they work for? What sort of clients? Um, so one of their clients was the DNC, which was not my client, so I didn't have to deal with that. But that was during the whole uh, Russian infiltration deal. And so that was that was a big deal that uh, they were dealing with on the side. The League of Conservation Voters, uh, a variety of small sort of nonprofits. What was the role exactly? I was doing um, project management more oh, like. Okay. So going in, you know, I think the thing with tech is sometimes the engineers are fantastic at what they're doing. They don't always love talking to the clients and figuring out, you know, their needs and the different politics of the organization. And so every organization is different. And you could have one technology platform, like let's say Okta. We were always trying to get everyone to implement a more secure system to like log into their various systems. Um, but some organizations were resistant or maybe they didn't have the budget. And so 
working, interfacing with their leadership and figuring out, you know, how to deploy these uh, tech platforms, that sort of thing. What were you doing outside of work during that time? You're working out of Brooklyn. What were your hobbies or what were you up to? Well, I had been a running coach, but kind of latent as I got way out of shape for these campaigns. Um, so I got back into running and ended up being a coach for um, New York Roadrunners doing their marathon training charity program. And then I also started being a personal trainer at a boxing gym. So it was nice to sort of pair that very different lifestyle but I felt like it also brought me a lot of sort of professional development opportunities in terms of like being able to speak to large crowds of people with authority, um, just sort of working with really interesting people. I mean, everyone that lives in New York City is like incredibly driven and like what they do with their life is so interesting. So it was sort of a, a networking opportunity in a way. So just like when you were working with me and you went off to work for Obama as a as a young woman, you again felt the lure of politics in a big election year. Tell me about that choice to leave your job and join Biden in New Hampshire and why Biden and you know what was in your head at that point? I tried to resist the pull of, you know, it's like an election year comes along and I'm like, no, 2016, I was able to successfully resist it, but it was difficult. And so in 2020, I mean, I felt some serious regrets of having sort of sat, I mean, I volunteered, obviously, but of having sat that one out. And it was just, it was too important. I mean, I didn't want to give up my life. I had a great life in New York City, but one of those things were like, I knew I couldn't sit on the sidelines and every day think about like how much I could be doing. Um, and I knew I had the the skills that I could be helpful. Um, and there was an open position in New Hampshire, which, you know, is just my stomping grounds. I feel like I know it. I could be really helpful in terms of, you know, knowing the lay of the land, that sort of thing. So once again, I packed up all my and I'll, I'll back up and say, you know, I got the question, why Joe Biden so many times? And I will say, like, total transparency before he jumped in the race, I sent my resume over to the Kamala campaign, because I, I loved her. I saw her grill everyone on the hill. I thought she was fantastic. But sorry, like they never saw my resume. So you know, Joe Biden. <laughs> but Joe, I mean, I had worked in the White House, right. And so seeing him as vice president, he didn't get the press. He didn't get any of the sort of credit, but his work on the Recovery Act, especially working with all the governors, I mean, he just grinded it out and did like the actual hard work behind the scenes and saw how like effective he was in the government. That combined with his years of experience in like leading the foreign policy, like the committee and Senate and just all of the experience he had throughout the years. I think people weren't really like thinking about all that. And I just felt like he was the one that was going to be able to beat Trump. You know, I liked a lot of the other candidates, certainly. But having been in politics for 20 plus years, I just kind of did the assessment and, and felt that he was the one that was going to be able to bring it home. You know, in the primary, when there was over 20 Democratic candidates, there was a flavor for most of us, right? I liked the field. I liked just about everybody. I got bumper stickers and buttons for everybody and, and kind of made a collection. In general, I've tried to just be a Democrat and like all the Democrats and root for all of them, although I, you know, I had my favorites. And But I think what's interesting about Biden is that people have come along afterwards to see, hey, well, even though he looked a little lackluster early on and there were more exciting choices that he may have been the right person for this moment. And it's possible he was the only one that actually would have won. 
because he just had you know such a deeply established reputation that he was harder to take down. It feels really nice, even in the past couple of days. I mean, I have friends from all over the spectrum, obviously, since the beginning that liked, I mean, I would say there were a very small amount that liked Joe Biden from the beginning as their like first choice. But in the past couple of days, I've seen some of my friends who were Warren or Bernie supporters say, I'm really glad that I voted for Joe Biden. That was the tweet. Like, it's it. And I, you know, not at all flaunting or, you know, like saying I told you so at all. I'm just, I, I agree that like, I didn't even know how right Joe Biden was for this moment. None of us knew that COVID was coming, but, you know, I think the healing factor of, I've always kind of been like this. I'm a very like, let's talk it out type person where I want to bring people together. And having been in New Hampshire so many times, throughout the years and seeing what the people at the doors that are not political, they just live in the middle of rural America and what their concerns are. I just felt like he was the right one to like bring together as much as we can or start to bring together um, people from both sides of the aisle or different perspectives, you know? However, pre South Carolina, he was not raising much money. He wasn't finishing very high in the vote totals in the early States. How was it in New Hampshire? to be, as you say, kind of grinding it out. That's a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> you know, honestly, for probably months, I didn't actually know how we finished in New Hampshire because it was so devastating. I mean, I was in the boiler room and we I just couldn't <laughs> believe how bad it was. The decision was made for him in the middle of the day on New Hampshire primary day to leave to go to South Carolina. That killed us, you know, and I think that was such an interesting decision that absolutely was the right strategic one. But in the moment... I mean, I think you had a fair amount of our staff that were more devastated than I knew. There were a small number that were like, we know we have the numbers. We know how this process works. I think every four years, we forget that this comes down to the electoral votes and that there are other states with a much more diverse coalition that support us. But, you know, in the moment, you fifth place in New Hampshire, I mean never, you know, I remember Anita Dunn coming into the campaign headquarters and being like, I've never in the history of politics have I seen things play out in this dramatic um, of a fashion. We didn't have money. I remember, I think it was going into Super Tuesday and major credit to Molly Rittner. She was the Super Tuesday director. She absolutely took the money out of the operations, put it towards any sort of comms events. I mean, just like reshuffled the little money and resources that we have. But I remember telling our North Carolina operation or um, state director, field director, whatever she was, that we didn't have money for her to buy a table and shares and Sharpies, that we would buy her the Sharpies. She could go find the table from a volunteer. <laughs> so it was, it was dire straight out there. <laughs> It, it was rough times, you know, but like those were the moments where it was like, we either fight for this, like we can win it or we pull back and we're going to lose this entire thing. And the fact that the vibe at headquarters was very optimistic, like, interestingly, we were all like, we don't know if we can make this happen, but we got to give it the best that we got. Um, so I was surprised that there wasn't that like, sort of, we've lost this thing feeling. After the fifth place finish in New Hampshire, where did you go? I went to headquarters immediately after that. So in the middle of February, moved to Philly, where our headquarters was right downtown, which people don't notice. People still are reaching out to me saying, great work on, on Pennsylvania, not realizing that our national headquarters was in Philly because we only had it for you know a short amount of time. It's right near his home yeah. state. Right? And yeah. you know, Jill, his wife, 
basically grew up in Philly and just have a lot of roots and ties to the Philly area, which is cool. But yeah, so then I went on to be the the national state operations director, which is a role that hadn't actually been filled from that point. What does that mean, national state operations director? Yeah, so like every, it was the head of that sort of department. So every every year you have uh, operations directors in all of the states. And so it was managing that whole team. So like the organizing team had an organizing director that's managing all of the organizing staff in those states, it was that for the, the operations team. Um, and then there's a separate headquarters operations team that dealt with the logistics of headquarters and, and all of that. What did you learn from being national state operations director? So much, so, so much. It was such an untraditional year where we were ready to do the typical things, which are usually setting up field offices is a huge undertaking. The process, working with the legal team, on the Obama campaign, I think we had 700 field offices nationwide. But when COVID hit, because we kind of have proven ourselves to be the problem solvers, we became the sort of de facto COVID department, health and safety department on top of our other responsibilities. So I think so many things shifted. And when COVID happened, I was trying to figure out what do we do? Our role is so on the ground, so hands-on, so moving boxes type. How are we going to be helpful there? And just kind of saying, how can we most be helpful? And so we, you know, I kind of offered our folks up as the Zoom administrators for a lot of our big like surrogate events. And uh, we were doing press clips for a while. Like we just kind of dove in wherever we could play the holes and be helpful. Um, so I learned a lot about, you know, pivot, being able to pivot from this strategic plan we had to like all of a sudden just throw it out the window. Learned so much about COVID and like data analytics, working with the leadership team and building a team. I think, you know, going into the general, we had to hire all of these state operations directors working with the states, which involved a lot of politics. They had their own candidates they wanted. Um, there were, you know, a variety of different sort of politics. So Building that team out in the best way possible was a huge challenge for us, too. Did it feel like the Biden campaign in 2020 had its shit together? It did. You know, from the beginning, we were kind of the, you know, the establishment candidate. He was the former vice president of the United States. So to a certain extent, we always, I felt that we had that sort of like, we're going to figure this out. We're not going to be chaotic about it. I mean, certainly like any campaign there are so many moments where you don't know what you're doing at all and you're going to but you're going to figure it out. So, I always felt like there was that that team where you could lean on each other to be able to figure it out. It was a such a high stakes election. For me just as an observer, I could barely stand to listen to the news on election day. I had to hide out with NPR in the in the wood shop and try to <laughs> keep myself from going up and down too much. I just couldn't stand to lose to Trump. I felt like the country was was in serious danger if he won again. What were you feeling? What was what were your emotions as you approached the election day itself? Well, let me tell you, when you're when you're maybe in October, if you are working especially at headquarters, you you've just lost the ability to feel feelings. I remember several times when I was like, I should be crying, but I, I'm so tired that I literally cannot feel any feelings. So um, there was that. But <laughs> I think and if we can just reflect on those few days of just like the anxiety of not knowing, you know, it was like not a typical election. Those were a few horrible days for everyone. But I was, well, number one, incredibly busy with um, we had had to figure out how to build a virtual boiler room, national boiler room. I was sort of 
on edge waiting for that to crash. Or, you know, I definitely thought that there was a chance that Russia or China or something would hack it. We would need to switch systems all of a sudden. So I was kind of focused on that in the moment. What is a boiler room for people who who don't know that? You know, it's funny. I had to do like several presentations. What is a boiler room? Um, (laughs) Because some people haven't been through a full um, election cycle. You know, it's like a war room, essentially, where you have the leadership. In the, So there's one in each state. You have the leadership. And it's a very structured system where the information is flowing up like a very structured chain. I like it because it's sort of like the military, very like it has to go through this one person so that it's not chaotic, right? If you're having multiple people reporting an incident multiple different ways, it, it would be out of control. So, And then that all funnels up from the states to the national leadership. And then they, it's really designed so that you can figure out how to allocate resources, whether it's money or people or whatever it is. So, you know, it's the legal team reporting, oh, we're having voter fraud incidents at XYZ location, or it's operations being like, you know, all of our Wi-Fi just went down incidents sort of like that. And then all the way up to the campaign manager level, making decisions on, you know, if we need to revise things. And the whole purpose is that you've hopefully set up this system so that you don't actually have to do much on election day, that you're sort of reporting in numbers and that sort of thing, but that you've done the work so that you can sit there and hopefully just, you know, wait for it all to go down. The way this election worked, even though it was not close in the popular vote, in fact, Biden thrashed him in the in the popular vote. It was super close in the electoral vote. And with Trump sort of trying to cheat and throwing up all kinds of misinformation and his allies doing that, it took a long time to come to a really official declaration that he that he had won and stages of that. How did that affect your job? Yeah, we, I mean, we were waiting for it to come in. We had a brilliant analytics director, Becca Siegel, from the very beginning, and she seemed really confident in the fact that, you know, we had done so much work in terms of getting out the early vote, the mail-in vote that Trump just didn't do. And like COVID, strangely, was kind of on our side in terms of like the high turnout in some of these states that had like fully adopted mail-in ballots. And so I think we, or at least I felt like we had the votes, but it was just so slow in counting them. But there was definitely an air of worry in terms of was he going to challenge? I mean, he was going to challenge all of these. So I immediately, we kind of shifted our focus to setting up the budget and everything for the challenges for the potential recounts, that sort of thing. So like I immediately sort of, we shifted focus, a very small team of us to building out, like, how are we going to, you know, pay for all of these things? And are we going to send people to whatever the, the states that needed to be challenged? So we immediately shifted into that next mode of planning, like, how are we going to attack this, this next phase? And that lasted for a while. It wasn't an immediate turn off of like, now it's not a problem. It was sort of a slow, like none of these challenges in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are are actually being effective. You said back at the top of this interview that you ended up as director of operations for the inaugural committee. When did that happen? What was the time from working on these challenges to dealing with the inauguration like, and how did you get that job? Yeah. And I felt like I couldn't leave until we sort of were in a good place with the recounts. So I actually joined, uh, we got a late start, a very late start on the inaugural, just because there were so many of these other challenges. I was also shutting down the campaign. So working on that. Um, So I joined in December, 
other staff members had already started. I mean, the COO, Lee Flores, did a tremendous amount. Maju was the COO from the campaign. So the operations team and the advanced team really like moved over to running the inaugural committee. So I joined a couple days after they really started. And um, it was really cool because all the processes that you had put into play on the campaign, we weren't, we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were just like moving those over um, and then trying to put together an inauguration as quickly as possible with a huge focus on health and safety, which fortunately we had put so much thought into that on the campaign that it wasn't terribly, terribly hard to put that together. Did you get the job of picking the poet? No, she was incredible. Just absolutely mind blown. She's going to be, you know, a legend from here on out. But that was that was one of the highlights for sure for me. After the inauguration, what's life been like for Laura DeLucia? It's been wonderful. I got a couple of calls for potential jobs in the administration straight off. But I realized that I was just completely exhausted. And for the first time, you know, I've been going directly into the next thing time after time, and decided to try to be a little more intentional. I I mean, I, I got potential interviews for jobs that were fascinating, but that is that what I really wanted to do? Did I think that that would have the most impact on someone's life? Like, no, I thought that anyone could plug in. So I've been taking time to, you know, I was just saying, I missed, I think, 88 weekends of the year. We had no days off on the campaign, basically. You know, it's just week after week. And so just trying to take time to, like, read books that I missed, kind of, like, think about, you know, next steps and what I want to do. What would be your ideal next step? (laughs) Um, You know, I really... At some point, I, I so I moved to Philly here, right? Like right after New Hampshire. And even though it's been COVID, so I haven't really gotten to get a great sense of what Philly was like before the pandemic, seeing the levels of poverty and the inequality and how fired up people were here during the protests and Black Lives Matters, I would love to work, you know, for city government or for a nonprofit trying to reduce the the poverty and the inequality, I think, you know, it leads to the insane crime. I think Philly, I mean, Philly is a wonderful place. And I think it could be an even better shining city. And it's just, you know, it's really tragic how some people are living here really just day to day. So I would love to do something like that. But honestly, there's so many interesting opportunities and like operations is a part of every organization. So I think there's there's a ton of different opportunities out there. I trust that whatever you choose will be interesting and, and have impact. Laura, is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? Let's see. I think maybe like what's one of the the interesting things from the campaign that you would want to point out? And I think the number and the level of the women um, on the campaign was something that struck me, you know, having done this for several decades and seen the trajectory of like when I got into it it was just assumed that the campaign manager would be male, um, that the leadership staff would be male. And I remember being on one call where one of our top legal counsel said, can we just take a moment and appreciate how everyone on this call, and they were department directors, you know, it was the head of the battleground states, it was the legal team, Um, technology had a ton of women involved, like, it was just really cool to see how far we've come. The campaign manager was, you know, Jen O'Malley Dillon, and moms too, you know, they had small children and they really normalized that. I mean, the first call that Jen had, she brought in her two of her little kids, introduced them. I felt uncomfortable because I've always been like, work is work. You know, this is so interesting. She's showing she has them on her lap. But like, I felt like we really kind of took a turn and, you know, that's going to be normal from here on out. So that was, that was really cool. Any other 
thing from the campaign, whether an event or uh, a person that sticks in your head that you'll always remember? Um, I think it's a, a department, you know, I just got to shout out the, the DNC IT team combined with the campaigns IT team. They were such partners. I mean, I consider them family. I just messaged them. Women leadership there as well. Yeah, hundred percent. Our yeah. IT, you know, battleground IT director was female, which didn't even seem like a big deal at the time, but you know, they were a huge partner. We had to ship out thousands of computers. I mean, the things that they do are under the radar in terms of protecting uh, the security of the campaign. But, you know, we didn't have a major hack. We kept everyone sort of safe. It was a, it was a difficult time, but um, they were just like a, an amazing partner, I will say. In 2024, either, very likely, either Biden or maybe Harris would run. It's very possible against Trump or a Trump-like creature from the right. Uh, you gonna do it again? You know, I always say no, and I'm gonna say now <laughs> for now. You know, and then I'm I'm one to walk back on my word. But <laughs> I think I am 38, and um, you know, I think you reach a certain point where you realize you're just you you don't have the stamina for this thing. And there's so many talented operations people that we've built up. So you know, I think absolutely, absolutely, I will be involved on some level, whether it's volunteer or advising or something like that. But Full-time, I mean, it's a really once or twice in a lifetime thing, I think. It's so lovely to talk to you. It's really great to see how you've built an interesting career uh, over these years since we first met. And I wish you the absolute best in the next steps going forward. Thank you so much. I've been honored and humbled to be here. That was Laura DeLucia of the Biden campaign. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.